Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we come before you this morning. Holy, holy, holy God. To worship you, to make much of your name. We, we come to do that in, in song. We come prayer. We come to do that in conversation. And Lord, now we come to do that through the preaching of your word. And as we now open up your word, Lord, I pray that we will have ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive, minds to comprehend uh, the, the truths that you'd have us to receive this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its sufficiency. We thank you for its authority. We thank you that you love us enough to reveal yourself to us. Help us to know you uh, a little bit better today. And may we live our lives in honor of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, go ahead and take your seats. And as you do, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. It is good to be back. Uh, so, so good uh, to be back. Leslie and I had a uh, uh, great time away, very grateful um, for the needed time away, but, but glad to, to be able to be back and to have a church family that not only allows us, but encourages us time um, is in a great, great um, joy. Um, am I going to need to grab another mic? I am or not. I leave for just two Sundays. And I got to talk with the guys who had the microphone before me. But while I'm doing, talking with them later, Zach's like, hold on, I didn't do anything. But I want to just give those guys thanks. But before it, again, thank you to the congregation. Thank you all for allowing us to have the time away, um, to be able to re relax and to rest and to enjoy time together. But it is such a joy to be able to come back to a church that we love. Uh, I can honestly say that pastoring this congregation is one of uh, the great joys of my life. And uh, being able to pastor with the guys and with the congregation is, is truly a blessing. And again, I want to thank Zach and Jonathan for all the hard work that they put into preparing uh, sermons while I was gone uh, for, for preaching. It was a, a, just a relaxing thing for me to be able to know that while we were gone, Christ was going to be made much of from this pulpit as always. That is our aim. It is not about the person standing beside, behind this uh, pulpit. It is about the word that is being preached from this pulpit. And we want to make much of Christ each and every time. So, so thank you all. But now I want you to think about the importance of a name. Think about a name for a moment. Um, we put a lot of thought into to names. You, you find out you're having a baby and you almost immediately begin to what? You begin to think about names, You're going through all the list of what are we going to name. Maybe you've had that name picked out for a very, very long time. But um, either way, you've put a lot of thought into that name. Well, most of us do. Most people put a lot of thought into names. I hear some names today, and it's as though somebody just is playing Scrabble. They just reach into the bag, they throw the letters out. And like, How in the world did you come up with it? And even, I guess, the better question is, like, why did you come up with this name? Like, and, and don't act like you're playing the holier-than-thou art card and think that you don't think those things. Like, you hear somebody's name, you're like, really? Like, like how, how is that a name? And what I really get a kick out of today is when people name their kids biblical names. And there's nothing wrong with 
in your kid a, a biblical name. There's biblical names throughout this room, and I'm not going to name any of them specifically, but what tickles me is when I hear people who name their kid a biblical name, they're really like, yeah, I'm going to name my kid a biblical name, and then they're like, then I hear the name, and it's like, you have no idea what that name means, do you? Because if you knew what that name meant, you would not have named your kid that biblical name. And then I'm just thinking, like, you know, that poor child uh, is going to have that name for the rest of their life. And there's a lot of importance that goes with the name. We put a lot of thought into names. Why are we going to name our kid this? Why are we going to name our kid that? And really the focus of this commandment, the the name of the Lord. So picking up in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now on the surface, this is a commandment that we're we're prone to think of in a fairly simplistic fashion. Most to thinking, if we don't use God's name as a cuss word, we watch out for the, the OMGs, then, then we're, we're good. But the third commandment runs much deeper than this, and, and that's what we want to look at today, kind of flush this out a little bit further. Notice how the verse starts with a, a prohibition. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's a strict instruction from God to not take his name in vain. But then we have to ask the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to to not take the name of the Lord your God in vain? Vain meaning to using God's name, the, the Lord's name in an empty, worthless, futile, meaningless way. So so it means you shall not take the, the name of the Lord your God or use the name of the Lord your God in a worthless or empty or meaningless way. That's the prohibition. Prohibition is then followed by a consequence. It's if you do this, this is what's going to happen. That, that's, that's what a loving father, that's what a loving parent does. Gives the prohibition first and said, okay, then here's the consequences if you don't. To get the consequences without the prohibition is just abuse. That's not what God does. He says, here's what you don't do. But if you do... Here is going to be the penalty. Here is going to be the the consequence. He says, for the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Meaning for those who use the Lord's name in a worthless, meaningless, futile, empty way, there will be consequences. So what we're going to do today is, is look at three questions. One, at why this commandment is so important. Two, at at the punishment for for breaking this commandment. And three, look at how we are all guilty of breaking this commandment. So let's start with number one. Why is the third commandment so important? And to answer this question, we need to understand the third commandment isn't just referring to the name Lord, but all that's connected to the name of the Lord. See, the focus here, like with the the previous two commandments that we have looked at, is on God and how he is to be highly valued above all else. Just consider the context of of this particular verse. Look with me at verse 2, where all these Ten Commandments started. First, who's speaking from the fire here? God is. God is the one who is speaking from the fire. And what's he say from the fire in verse 2? 
He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So what's he doing here? What's God doing here before he gives even the very first commandment? Yes, he's reminding them of their redemption. He is reminding them that grace comes before the law. He's establishing here, though, that the reason why he has the authority to give the law. Yes, because he's the redeemer, but he's also establishing the, the reason why he has the authority to tell his people how they are to live. He has the authority, church, to tell us how, he, how we are to live. And he's telling us this right here. And how does he do it? He starts with two little words. His name, I am. Look back with me, if you will, to Exodus chapter 3. Moses is upon this same mountain, and God is speaking to Moses from the fire of the burning bush. The Lord is telling Moses what he's about to do to redeem redeem his people. This is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it through you, Moses. All of this I'm telling you. And what does Moses say to God in verse 13 of chapter 3? If if I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And then they ask me, what is your name? What shall I say to them? And how does God respond? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. Then the question we need to ask here is who gave God his name? Well, he did. God gave himself his name. God named himself. Don't overlook that. Think about that for a minute, that God named himself. Who does that? Like, no one else does that. People change their names, right? People can maybe say, I'm going to be called this and not this, and we, we change our names. But none of us in this room named ourselves. Only God does that. Only God has the authority to do that. The question is, why? Why? And the answer is because he's God. He has the authority to name himself because he's God. He is sovereign. But not only is he sovereign, he is self-sufficient. You think about this. He, He needs nothing, lacks nothing, perfectly sufficient in and of himself, has been, always will be. But that's not all. He's also self-existent which is why he is sovereign and self-sufficient. Just let your mind swim on who God is for a moment. It's going to take you to depths so great and so awesome, like thinking that long before he ever created anything, God existed. Like just let your mind swim there for a while. He's always existed. There's never been a time when God did not exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like never. And then at a point of his divine choosing, he spoke creation into existence. We can't even say at a time of his divine choosing because time didn't exist until God created time. He is before time. He ex- when he spoke creation to existence, he also spoke time into existence. Didn't have to, but he wanted to. And just, just think about that. Just think about the grandeur and the glory of God. He spoke creation into existence out of nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing exists without him. 
That's what it means for him to be self-existent. And nothing holds together in this moment without him continuing to hold it together. That's him being self-sufficient. And how does he hold all things together? He tells us by his word, which is what? The very means of which he used to create to begin with and also the means of which he's holding all things together by the word of his power. And this is the God who has made himself known, church. He is not some generic unknown God. No, he is the God who has made himself known. He is here and he is not silent. Which tells us what about God? Which tells us what about Jesus? Tells us what about the incarnation? The Son of God taking on flesh in Jesus is a very, very, very special way of God making himself known. He didn't have to, but he does. And he's making himself known in a very personal way. Think of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name what? Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean, church? God with us. Again, rest there for a moment. God with us. The God who is sovereign. The God who is self-sufficient. The God who is self-existent is the God who has made himself known. Which begs the question, why? Why would he do this? And I think in, in answering this question, I can't help but think of Psalm 8. Psalm 8, 1, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your what? Name in all the earth. Psalm 29, verse 2, ascribe to the Lord the glory that is due his what? His name. Oh, church, you think of the Lord's prayer, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, the Lord teaching the disciples how to pray. How does it begin? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy Name, hallowed be your name. This is how Jesus has taught us to pray. Hallowed be your what? Name. Why? Why? Why does God do this? Why is he, the very first part of the Lord's Prayer, why is he teaching us to pray this way, to think this way? Because God wants nothing more than to have his name hallowed. That is, he wants his name esteemed and admired and respected, and cherished, and honored, and praised. That's what he wants for his name. So now, keeping with this line of thinking, I want us to think in the context of the book of Exodus. When God redeemed his people from Egypt, we again have to ask the question, why? Why? Was it simply to show favor to his people, to be nice to his people? No. It was to make much of his name. And to flesh this out further, turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 16. Paul pointing back to, to Exodus and specifically to God's purpose with Pharaoh. And really the question Paul's answering here in this section is, why 10 plagues, right? Why not just one? 
Why not just one mighty act be done with it? Why carry this on with Pharaoh for, for 10 different plagues? Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. So just pause right there. This is the purpose for which Pharaoh existed. This is the purpose for which Pharaoh was created. That I might show my power in you. And that my name, this is being God, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So what's the purpose of Pharaoh? What's the purpose of Exodus? To make God's name known throughout all the earth, to make him famous among all peoples. Now turn with me to Isaiah chapter 63, where Isaiah is referencing back to the parting of the Red Sea. And just a brief note here, notice how all the Bible is pointing back to Exodus. If you're reading through the over and over again. You're going you're to see constantly pointing back to Exodus. Why? Because if we want to know God, if we want to know the gospel, we have to understand the book of Exodus. But Isaiah chapter 63, referring to the, the parting of the Red Sea, verse 12, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name. Who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Meaning God showed his power at the Red Sea and in Egypt and right now in their journey through the, the wilderness for his name's sake. His first love, God's first love is rooted, church, in the value of his holy name. And it's because his first love is rooted in the value of his holy name that there is hope for sinful people like us. Now let's flesh that out just a bit further. Eventually, God's people will enter into the promised land. It's going to take them a while, but they're going to enter into the promised land. And we could give example after example of all the Lord does for his name in that process. But when God's people are in God's place, living in the promised land, do they live under God's rule? Do they hallow his holy name? No. So we're finding some correlation even with ourselves here in the text. Yet God is gracious and he is merciful, is he not? We see that in the sending of the judges. We see that in the sending of the prophets. We see that in the sending of eventual kings. And under David and Solomon, we see a time of relative peace and as good as it's going to get in that period of time where the kingdom is united, Israel is united, God's people in God's place under God's rule. But after Solomon kingdom is divided and eventually their rebellion against God's name grows to such a degree what does God do kingdom is not only divided but the people are exiled from the land just as Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden here God giving them over to the hands of their enemies the Babylonians take them into captivity in fact turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36 
Because here's where we, we see how God responds to what appears to be a setback to his reputation. The people who are to make much of his name have done nothing but trample God's name through the mud of sin and shame. They are to be a light to the nations, a bright light to the nations, and all they have done is hidden that light under the basket. They have not been doing that. They've been trampling on the name of the Lord. Again, we see the correlation with us in so many ways. We have not honored the Lord with our life. We have not honored the Lord with our words. We have not honored the Lord with our actions. So what does God do here? Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 20. But when they came to the nations, that's during their captivity, they're no longer in Israel. They've been taken out. Wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. In that people said to them, these are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. So the peoples are noticing this. They're like, these are the people of the God. And yet he's kicked them out of the land. But God's speaking here, verse 21. But I had concern for what? For my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. God's having concern for his reputation Verse 22, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them, And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So why does the Lord rescue Israel from captivity? For the sake of his own name. For the sake of his own name. Now, do they benefit from this? Absolutely do they benefit But the driving force behind their redemption isn't their redemption. It isn't God's love for them. It's God's love for himself. It's for the hallowing of God's name among the nations. Which begs another critically important question. Why does God send his son And our first thought, our first inclination there when we hear that question of why does God send his son is first to think immediately about ourselves. Immediately to think about sinful people. That's our first thought. But why does he send his son, church? For the sake of his holy name. The cross of Christ is first and foremost for the redeeming of God's holy name. A name that sinners like us have trampled through the mud of sin and shame. And yet, and yet, do repenting and believing sinners benefit from redemption? Absolutely we benefit from redemption. We absolutely benefit from God's great act of redemption. But the primary purpose for our redemption is so that the name of Jesus will be hallowed among all peoples. 
Thus, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Why? Why does he give this commandment? So God's name will be hallowed among all peoples. So his name will be made famous among all the peoples of the earth. Think Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Turn with me there, if you will. Zach preaching on this passage a couple weeks ago. Jonathan building upon it last week. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. And Paul's speaking of the humility of the Son of God taking on flesh. He's speaking on the purpose of the incarnation of Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Why? Why would he do this so that at the name of Jesus. The what? At the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So church, why Jesus? Why the great commission? To bring fame to God among all creation. And in following Christ, this is the name we bear. We are Christians. We are Christ followers. He is the one we represent. Which brings us to question number two. Much shorter than question number one. What is the punishment for breaking the third commandment? Well, turn with me to Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. Well, we're given the punishment for, for blasphemy, for breaking the third commandment. Verse 10 and following, giving us the, the account of a young man who, blaspheming the name of the Lord. We're not told the specifics. We're told all that we need to know. He used the name of the Lord in an unholy manner, a flippant, non-honoring, non-respectful way. So what happens? Well, he's taken into custody. Verse 13, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp, the one who cursed. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head in order to condemn him. And let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourners as well as the native when he blasphemes, the name shall be put to death. So it's the congregation, if you notice, the, the congregation of the people of Israel who are to take responsibility here. Accountable. Now the obvious question here is, how do we apply this to today? How do we apply this to today? We have three options. One we do nothing. Just let it go. Somebody blasphemes the name of the Lord and you just let it go. Let professing Christians say whatever they want to say and do whatever they want to do. Just let it go. But that in no way seems biblical considering how serious God takes his name, does it? No. 
Which brings us then to the second option coming from Leviticus. Number two, we, we could stone them. Um, public execution. No, nobody's like reacting to that one at all. Um, like you are awake. Like I just said, like the one option here is I could stone them. Rest assured, that's not a viable option. Um, and the reason that it's not a viable option is why, church? Because of Jesus. Because, praise the Lord, we remember Jesus has fulfilled the law. We don't have to die for blaspheming the name of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus died for us. And don't let that pass too quickly. Don't just, just hear that and let it pass over. Let, don't, don't pass by. Remember how serious God takes his name. Think about, think about the seriousness of which God takes his name. And with that in mind, he levied the wrath of his righteous judgment upon his sinless son to pay the penalty for our blasphemy, for our sin, for our failure, for our iniquity. Church, we're talking about unbelievable grace. <laughs> unbelievable grace. And that brings us to our third option. And the New Testament parallel to what we see in the Old Testament of church discipline. You know, commonly think of church discipline associated with blasphemy, but it's very, very biblical. It's what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 18. It's the church, the, the community of believers who have been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, taking loving responsibility for their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. We're, we're helping one another grow in Christ's likeness while at the same time pr protecting the reputation of the church. The church being what? We're the bride of Christ. What happens in a wedding? The bride takes on the name of the groom. We, we become the name bearers. We are Christians. And in protecting the reputation of his bride, what's the church doing? Of, what are we doing here? Bride of Christ, to protect this, what do we do? It's protecting the name of the Lord. It's protecting the reputation of the Lord. When we hold one another accountable, when we encourage one another, when we correct one another, when we teach one another in love, we're doing so to protect the reputation of the Lord. Which brings us to our final question. How are we guilty of breaking the third commandment? And I've got four ways listed here. Could easily expand these, could clearly add to these, could talk about this a long time. But first, we break the commandment when we misrepresent God. Because remember, the revelation of God's name is the revelation of who he is. It's the revealing of his character. It's the revealing of his attributes. It's the revealing of his sovereignty, of his love, his power, his holiness, all these things. But when he's misrepresented, his attributes are maligned and distorted. See, the third commandment holds very closely with the first two commandments. And to misrepresent God as someone other than who he is is to bear false witness uh, against God. Meaning God is who he has revealed himself to be and nothing less and nothing more. 
We never have the ability to say, you know, I think of God as, and then fill in the blank with anything other than what is revealed in Scripture. That's it. We think of God as he has revealed himself in Scripture, and that's all we can think of God as. To do any other is a violation of the third commandment. It's using God's name in a false and misrepresenting way. So that's one way we break the third commandment. But we also break this commandment when we use God's name flippantly. Now this definitely assumes using God's name, Jesus' name, as a, as a cuss word. Or falsely when lying under oath. Or using it in a, a flippant passing with, with no reference to the one true and only God. Definitely assumes all of these things. So a wise rule of thumb to, to avoid such flippant usage of God's name is, is if you aren't talking to the Lord or about the Lord, then you shouldn't be using the Lord's name. Simple as that. If you're not talking to the Lord or about the Lord, then you should not be using the Lord's name. But I believe the flippant use of God's name extends further than just the obvious. I believe it extends even into our prayers, even though that may be even unintentionally. Jesus warning his disciples in Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, that when they pray, do not heap up empty phrases to the Gentile, as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. The emphasis here is on avoiding empty prayers, thoughtless prayers, prayers that are theologically incorrect. So when somebody prays, like, Lord God, we, we love you. Father, Father, thank you for, for dying for us. Father Jesus, we, we pray. Not thoughtful prayer, not a theologically correct prayer. The Father did not die for us. Jesus died for us. The Son of God died for us. It, it, when we pray that way, it, it's using God's name as a comma or a period. It, it's why Jesus teaches his disciples very specifically how to pray. But let me be clear in this as well. This is in no way intended to frighten those who are just learning to pray. Children are going to pray. Adults are going to pray in ways that are repetitive. We're going to use God's name as a comma and as a period. And we're not always going to be super eloquent. We don't have to be. God's not looking for extreme eloquent prayers or that we get every theological detail right. But what we need to intend and what we need to do is to be saying, are we thoughtful in our prayers? Are we approaching our prayer, not with just our heart and just our, our soul, but are we also approaching our prayers with our mind? Are, are they coming from our heart and being influenced by our mind as well? Is it, is it a both and? Just even consider how we pray before a meal. We don't need those prayers to be long. I'm not a long prayer before a meal kind of guy. I'm like, let's pray and then let's eat. I don't want the food to get cold while we're, while we're waiting in, in that process. Let's just go. But our prayers in that moment still must not be flippant and thoughtless. There's no place in the home around the table for rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, yay God. That is flippant use of the name of God. It's not a way to teach our children to, to pray. It's also flippant and it's also thoughtless when we say things about God like, God is my coach. God is my therapist. God is my homeboy. He's the big guy upstairs. Things that we may not even be intentionally thinking about, but they're, they're flippant uses. He's none of the, he's God. We start thinking about who he is, God. He is not a punchline of a joke or a name to be flippantly tossed around. He is God. 
Now, another way that we break the third commandment is when we use God's name to advance our own agenda. Here's where we have many well-meaning Christians who would, who would not dare use the name of the Lord in any of the ways that we've previously mentioned, but have no problem saying things like, well, God told me, God led me, God showed me in ways that do not align with God's word, in ways that are, are very clear, not ways that God has authoritatively spoken. For example, when I was in college, I went to a, a private Christian university, and when someone would break up with someone else on campus, it would be the common line to say, sit them down and say, God told me we needed to break up. So not only now does the person feel bad that the person is breaking up with them, they feel bad because God told them that God wanted you to break up with me in the process. Now, the relationship may have needed to end. No reason to deny that. God, God may have used his word and revealed things from his word to reveal specific reasons why this relationship needed to end. He may have used godly men and women to, to lead you in this decision. You just may have felt deep down, this is not the relationship that I need to be in, and, and you exited that relationship. Not arguing that at all. But at no point did God authoritatively tell this person, you need to break up up with so-and-so. No. No no sitting someone down and saying, God told me to break up with you, or, or fill that in with anything else. That's using God's name to advance our own agenda. It's like, you know, I really don't want to break up with you, but God told me that we needed to break up, and so it's his fault, not mine. That's what we have in these situations. Now you just take the same situation. You're thinking, you're just kind of being hard on this person. But what if the exact same person that is being broken up with, they say, well, God told me that we need to get married. Well, now you have two conflicting words from the Lord that are both being used here that are not words from the Lord. Maybe that person is who you're supposed to marry. But at no point did God authoritatively say, you will marry so-and-so. Ezekiel 17, verse 5. It, doesn't, it would be much easier if it worked that way, right? It doesn't work that way. That's using God's name to advance our own agenda. We can't do that. God's name isn't to be used in, in ways that are meant to advance our own agenda or to manipulate in any way could spend so much more time here. But fourthly, when we use God's name fraudulently, this turns our attention to both our lives and our worship. We've already talked about prayer, and it could fall here as well, but also consider the songs that we sing. Do, do we believe and mean the words that we sing? We, we just sang at the start of our service, like, holy, holy, holy. Do we mean it? Do we, do we mean the words that we're saying? Think about his name and his fame in relation to these words, the holiness of God. Or think about the words that we're going to sing in just a few moments from the song, Christ is mine forevermore. Come rejoice, O my soul, for his love is my reward. Fear is gone and hope is sure. Christ is mine forevermore. Do we believe that? Do we believe that Christ is mine, Christ is ours forevermore, that his love is our reward? Or are we just going through the motions saying, man, i got to sing this in order to get out of here? What, what are we doing? 
But ultimately here, we're thinking about our entire life as followers of Christ. To carry the name, to bear the name of Christ is to carry with it an expectation of a certain way of life. We're to live like those, the one whose name we bear. And when we don't, we are in violation of the third commandment, which means we are all lawbreakers in this room, every one of us, because we have all lived fraudulently. We've all broken the third commandment, but praise the Lord for Jesus. Praise the Lord for the one who fulfilled the law with his perfect life. Praise the Lord for him who, who died, received our punishment with his sacrificial death. And praise the Lord for him who gives us new life now and forevermore because of the resurrection. Let us today and every day thank God that his, this forgiveness is found in the name of Jesus and no other name but the name of Jesus. So the question this morning is, are you, are we, are we living like, striving to live like, desiring to live like the one whose name we bear, Christ, our Savior? And for some, if you're being honest this morning, the answer is no, because you've never believed. You aren't right now trusting in Christ as your only hope in life and in death. And if that's you, I invite you today to believe in Jesus for there is salvation in no other name under heaven given but the name of Jesus. Scripture telling us very clearly, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. doesn't matter what you're coming in here with or what baggage you're coming with. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. We invite you to do this today. And if that is you and you do believe, praise God, I encourage you then to take the first step of public obedience to, to Christ to, by displaying your trust in him as your only hope in life and in death through believer's baptism. Believer's baptism being the sign God has given to identify his children as being a part of the family of God. As when we're, we're baptized in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So if you've never followed the Lord in believer's baptism, we would love to talk with you. Or maybe you just have questions. Either way, we'd love to talk with you about why obedience in baptism is such an important part of the Christian life. And even why we believe baptism precedes the partaking of the Lord's Supper. See, while baptism is the one-time oath sign displaying our entry into the family of God, it's where we display publicly that we have taken on the name of Christ. The Lord's Supper is the continual family meal where those bearing the name of Christ are reminded of God's faithful provision in Christ. And so today as we close and respond to the preaching of God's word, we invite everyone who has been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit to come to the table. Those who are trusting in Christ as their only hope in life and death to, to come to the table. So I'm going I'm to pray. And as I do, I encourage you to take time to prepare your heart to come to the table. Take time to repent of areas in your life where where you're not honoring the name of Christ, where you're not walking in, in faithful obedience. Even ask the Lord to identify and convict you of areas where you're not aware of. And then come to the table, not in your worthiness, not the worthiness of your name, but in the worthiness of Christ's righteousness. We're going to grab the elements. You'll find them in the back. You'll find a cup 
two cups stacked one upon the other, the, the bread on the bottom, the, the juice on, on the top. Take, grab those, bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them as a church family here in just a few moments. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you are jealous for your name, for your reputation. And we ask that you forgive us for, for when we don't make much of your name. Forgive us for, for sins of, of the sins of commission, sins of omission that result in, in maligning the name of Christ. Convict us of these sins. Bring us to repentance and allow us to rest in the forgiveness that is found in Christ. Help us to be ever mindful of our words and our actions. And may they be glorifying to you. May we who bear the name of Christ strive in the power given to us in the Holy Spirit to live lives that are honoring to you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.